Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this June episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and Buildings on Air is, of course, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, uh, sometimes more of one, less of the other. Um, and and we, sometimes uh, European football. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> European football. It's not going to be the first time where uh, we've had a very important Liverpool game uh, on the background. Uh, so, you know, you might get a few live updates uh, if, if, you're, if, you you're, if you're listening. You will. Uh, to the show we will live. not deny you the news of <laughs> Liverpool Tottenham from yeah. Spain. And if you're listening to the podcast version, uh, well, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, Suck it up. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, uh, also, you know, I I hope that folks are, are, are live streaming the show. I really uh, cherish that we are an FM radio show first and a podcast second. Um, if, if you listen to the podcast version of the show uh, – if, if you're in a far-flung place, I like highly suggest that you you stream Lumpin' Radio, no matter where you're at. Um, our our lead-in show uh, is is uh, the Yolo is, is from the Yolo Cali uh, Art Center, um, and it's it's a bunch of of youths from uh, from from Pilsen and Little Village. Youths, as we used to yeah, call the them youths. here in, in yeah. Bridgeport. Yeah. And like you know, I don't know these these days. Uh, you know, you you need wholesome content. And the Yolo Cali, the Yolo Cali kids, that that's, they're always they're always a joy to listen to. They bring it. Yeah. So check that out, folks. Um, today on our show, we've we've got a really 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 good one. Um, I'm extremely excited. This is kind of I, I've been I've been wanting to have a show kind of focused on the Green New Deal for a while now um, because it I mean it really is like the most important sort of po- political moment for us as designers maybe in in our lifetimes potentially and um, you know I think we can talk about the the importance of it as as a kind of sustainability initiative but um, you know. W- We've 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 spent a long time, kind of amidst a lot of of of, of, of not entirely unjustified fear mongering about sustainability. But now there's this kind of political moment up for grabs, where we can really uh, uh, I don't know ad- address the challenge at the scale that it needs to be. And um, uh, so I'm I'm really excited to to talk to Billy Fleming. He's going to be our first guest. Um, about that. Uh, then uh, we'll check in with um, uh, Caitlin Watson, a member of the Architecture Lobby in New York City, uh, very briefly about what the Architecture Lobby is doing around the Green New Deal. Uh, then um, in our regular segment with uh, Anjali Rao, Fun and Angry, uh, we'll talk about public practice, uh, an initiative in the UK that's kind of bringing architects and designers uh, back into the, f- the public fold. Um, and then, uh, then we'll open up our mailbag as we do uh, every show. Um, this time we'll have guest mailbaggers, uh, Nick Checky, Emily Hanley, mm-hmm. uh, our, our super subs, as it were. They just walked by the studio, actually. Oh, great. Yeah, right. Probably getting a sandwich. Yeah. Getting ready, fueling up for the <laughs> mailbag. Fueling up for the mailbag. Yeah. They got to be ready. I mean, we, we get you, Frequent listeners will know. We get wild questions. <laughs> you do. Usually about HVAC. <laughs> Usually. I don't know that there's an HVAC question. I've, oh, I've said, yeah. 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 Well, uh, without further ado, uh, we have Billy on the line. Billy, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the introduction. Billy, Billy you are the uh, 
Ian L. McHarg, uh, Center for Urbanism and Ecology Director. Uh, and you, you recently wrote an article in Places Journal uh, called Designing a Green New Deal. Um, or wait, sorry, it's, what is it? It's desi- yeah, Design and the Green New Deal, um, which was totally fantastic. I mean, I, I think that um, this, <laughs> I read it and I was like, <laughs> I got to get this guy in on the show. Um, because I, 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 what, I, what I really appreciated about the piece um, was was how you kind of start by talking about the kind of gap between our agency and position as designers and the kind of uh, various design disciplines, um, uh, you know, sense of disciplinary self-importance. Those things are sort of very very far apart. But here, a lot of designers tell it they're they're not at all. Um, and I and I'm, I and I really think that kind of addressing the kind of structural issues. Um, is, is 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 absolutely vital. So it was really really cool to see that kind of conversation being put front and center. Um, so uh, I, you know, I like I always tell my guests in advance of the show. I always start off with like a big unfair question, and then, and then we take the conversation from there. Um, and 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 this is a, a big and simple question. Like you know, there's lots of talk about the Green New Deal in the media. But maybe a lot of folks are not entirely familiar with like what it actually is. So, like, give us what what is the Green New Deal? What is the actual kind of status of this? I mean, it, it's out there in the zeitgeist. But what how 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 is it maybe beginning to meet the ground? Or how are folks thinking about it? Who are the players? That's the big unfair question. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that that's unfair. <laughs> I think that's the question everybody kind of gets at first with the Green New yeah. Deal because. Uh, it is relatively new for a lot of people, and I, I don't know that the information about it is as widespread as we would all like it to be. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think the Green New Deal, you know, is leaning really heavily, obviously, on its precedent, the New Deal, which I think tells us a lot about kind of where the Green New Deal is right now. It's not a one-off piece of legislation that we're sort of waiting for, you know, the stars to align in Congress and the White House to pass. Um, The New Deal itself sort of describes an improvisational experimental period of policymaking in the 1930s and 40s um, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, And it was really one of the first times that government sort of took a leading role as sort of an experimenter. Right. So it was both funding and doing the work of policy innovation. Um, Much of that dealt with public works and built environment and design questions. um, And you could look at the sort of alphabet agencies at that time, many of which were populated by designers, architects, landscape architects, and planners, um, some of which, you know, existed for the duration of FDR's presidency, some of which sort of began and then ended very quickly and then perhaps came about again in different forms during latter parts of his administration or afterwards, and some of which would, you know, continue today. Um, The TVA is a legacy of, of FDR that we still are sort of dealing with in different ways today. Um, and so the Green New Deal, you know, even though there is a physical like piece of paper, a, a non-binding resolution in the House um, that has, you know, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez uh, and many others as sponsors of, um, it's really a set of goals and ideas and frameworks for what we might imagine as a new generation of policymaking mm-hmm. that is scaled and scoped appropriately to the challenge of climate change and all the myriad things that that intersects with that are now before us. Um, so you could imagine this non-binding resolution as sort of a statement of goals and ambitions that we might imagine as animating the next 10, 12, 14, 20 years of policymaking. Uh, And if you think about, you know, one of the things I think about a lot these days is um, partially because we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of 
uh, Ian McCarg's book, Design with Nature, and one of my jobs, because I run a center that bears his name, is to do a lot of the, <laughs> the sort of commemorating uh, around that anniversary. Um, but I think about all the, the activism and the movement building of the 1960s, um, of which McCarg's book was you know, very firmly a part of that milieu, mm. um, and the huge wave of environmental legislation it unleashed in what's now called the environmental decade of the 70s. Yeah. Um, and we, of course, didn't get everything right in that decade. We got many things wrong like we did during the New Deal. Um, but it's about you know, creating space and opening up a window through which big things can happen. Right. And then doing whatever you can to sort of guard against the inevitable backlash to it. So um, that's a really long answer, I think, to your like whatever you <laughs> want to call it, your, your unfair first yeah. question. Yeah. Well, and I and I think that that framing, you know, I think um, what what's novel about it that might not be immediately obvious to people is the kind of insistence that like okay, it's it's kind of okay that this is opening up a broad like. Uh, a window, as you said, like it's kind of like just it's creating like a kind of a, a, a remit and like a, a a kind of call, an open call, like uh, in 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 and it's not common in this day and age. I feel for like legislation to really do that. I mean, a lot of uh, you know the the sort of so called progressives out there right now really kind of insist on on very like well, you got to have all of your you know te- technocratic stuff figured out in advance, and like you know, and and I and I and I think that th- that that kind of idea is is one of the ways in which actually progressive legislation kind of gets rolled back. So I'm 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 curious if you could I mean like and you you talk a lot about the kind of technocracy in in this piece um and I think it's something that in this show we we also we often cover with a great deal of skepticism as well so I'm 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 kind of curious if you if you could kind of talk about that and it's in its relationship to to this yeah I mean I think sort of embedded in that is is one of the arguments I make kind of throughout the piece right that and you you sort of hinted at this at the the introduction that designers, you know, at least contemporaneously have a tendency to frame ourselves and our work as like agents of change. Mm. Um, And I just fundamentally disagree with that framing, right? I think designers have been and probably will always be instruments of power. Um, And at times when the state is really strong and government views itself uh, as sort of an activist force or an experimental force or an innovative force, um, it means that design is an instrument for that innovation and experimentation. And when government is winnowed down to like its corpse as it has been under neoliberalism and we've sort of cut as much as we can possibly cut from the public sector and privatized everything we can privatize, then design becomes an instrument of capital in the private sector. And that's right. where we find ourselves now. Um, and I go back to, I don't, I don't know if you read Corey Robin at all, um, who's a really interesting political theorist. Um, he's done a podcast with Chris Hayes on um, the connection between Edmund Burke and Donald Trump and the sort of linearity of conservative thought from then to now um, that I think a lot about in this writing and that we've sort of exhausted, you know, the conservative project partially because conservatives have won everything. Um, (laughs) There there, there isn't a conservative project now. The project for them is corporate tax cuts. And they can barely do that, right? They needed 50 plus one uh, in the Senate to pass that. Um, And beyond that, there are no ideas because they've won all of the fights for the last 40 plus years since Reagan. Um, And this is part of what we're we're sort of finding. This is the moment we're finding ourselves in as designers, right? Is that we've reached the limits of what we can credibly claim to be able to do through 
corporate design practice and client-led or private sector-led design and real estate development. Yeah. Um, the, we, we sort of know what those results will be. We haven't changed our rhetoric around it much, uh, at least on the, on the practitioner side. Um, but we kind of know like what we can do with that tool. We know that it's not enough. And we know that we'll never, you know, be able to do anything at the scale at which it needs to happen in that model of practice. And so, I mean, I think the thing that that's really, it's really, the thing about this piece that resonated with other people and that has really given me a lot of hope that maybe I didn't have before I wrote it, um, <laughs> it's, how, it's just how many people I think sort of felt the same way. I mean, yeah. the response to this has really been overwhelming and particularly among younger designers who I think have come up um, in a different world than many of our, our faculty mates who trained us and many of our um, office mates who we'll work with um, and have seen and lived the limits of neoliberalism in a way that they have not. And we also have not sunk, you know, tons of, tons of money and many, many years of our life into investing in that system in a way that they have. And I'll, I'll just go back like one more time to the sort of activism of the 60s and the space created in the 70s for big national scale action again. But, you know, it's going to be incumbent upon young designers to lead all of this. Yeah. And I don't mean that in that we don't have anything to learn from the folks who came before us because we obviously have much to learn from them. Um, but we're the experience of being of, of downward mobility um, and all the different things that neoliberalism has created for us, some of which intersect with design and many of which do not. Um, we've lived through, we know the limits of, um, and we're going to have to find ways and other modes of practice that operate outside of them. Yeah, totally. I, I, and I think that, uh, you know, <laughs> again, that sort of like framing of like, you know, ar architects are always going to be an instrument or designers are always going to be a kind of instrument of power is like so key because I, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of my, my friends and colleagues who, 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 who I admire, uh, who, who really kind of talk about the designer as an agent of change. And I always greet it with a great deal of skepticism, which they always find really surprising. They're like, Kiefer, you have a show about leftists and architecture. You do organizing, blah, blah, blah. Like, how can you not like this stuff? And it's like, well, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that, like, you know, we have to, like, think about the kind of structural conditions that the majority of work happens. The, the rest is kind of ideology and so for, for me for me i think like you know the, the question is like yes we'll always be instruments of power and i think you you hit the nail on the head when it's like the question is like wh where is the power right and and that's a kind of question that is well beyond design that's a question yeah. of, of 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 kind of politics and and so i think for me that that's kind of one of the big questions that's out there is like okay so if architect if young designers are kind of look, surveying this landscape and and they kind of have an innate sense that you know okay it's the structures like but they they were not yet fully equipped to like get into that kind of arena and like find mm -hmm. that agency and i think like we're we're building it slowly i mean you know there's the architecture lobby and other organizations and lots of young folks going into like dsa like other org activists organizations which is really fantastic um but you yourself kind of have a, a background in in this right in sort right. of bri bridging these worlds so I'm, I'm curious maybe if you could kind of speak to how 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 we navigate between between these spaces because they are different and they require different skill sets even even as they're kind of related right right i mean i think you know, one of the points I also make in the piece is that design has been really disconnected from the movement world for a really long time. 
Um, and I think this is one of the things that's really given me hope about the architecture lobby, uh, which we don't have anything like it in landscape architecture, mm. um, is that you, you know, in a very short time, just by organizing, um, the architecture lobby has been able to pressure AIA to be better than it would have been without the lobby. So even in just a couple of years, if you can like think back to the horrendous statement after you know Trump won the election about e their eagerness to work with him on infrastructure <laughs> yeah. and the backlash to that that you all helped create, it's, uh, to now have them coming out and, and issuing a statement that like is imperfect and there are many things I would have done differently about it, but endorsing a Green New Deal, while my professional association, the American Society of Landscape Architects, did nothing, right. um, is 100% because of the architecture lobby and groups like it who've been pressuring AIA to be better. And I think, you know, in design culture, if we don't have an inside-outside strategy like that mm -hmm. for changing not only our professional organizations, but the models of practice that we're all sort of bound up in as we leave school, um, then we don't really have a way to close that gap between yeah. our, ambi our ambitions and the realities of day-to-day -day practice. Um, and for me, you know... I spent some time working as a young designer in a firm and very quickly found out that it was not for me. And I think, you know, my, where I come down on this is that we just need more pathways for people. Mm. That path is always going to make sense for some people. And that's totally fine um, to go down either the boutique or the corporate practice route. Sure. Um, I don't mean to disparage that at all. I think it's a perfectly viable thing that may always be at or towards the center uh, of landscape arch or architecture or landscape architecture. Um, but we need other options for people. And for me, I found that first by going to work as a, an organizer on the Obama campaign in 2008, um, by then getting hired on a few years later as a junior staffer in the White House Domestic Policy Council, where I got to do all kinds of um, policy development work on urban and environmental affairs um, through an office I assume is probably now empty in the Trump administration, <laughs> but that used to work on things, basically everything that touched on place-based um, anti-poverty, environmental remediation kinds of programs. Um, so then, you know, as I was a doctorate finishing up my, my PhD here at Penn, um, working with some friends I met during my time in D.C. and in Obama world uh, on creating something called Indivisible, which is uh, it's a progressive sort of leftist grassroots organizing nonprofit that's based in D.C., um, but has around 6,000 chapters now all over the country. Uh, the last time I asked them, I think we had about 10 chapters in every congressional district in the country, so all 435, um, and has grown from this, like, really hastily cobbled together Google Doc of, like, things you might do to organize your neighbors and friends around stopping the, the Trump administration through, um, you know, lobbying your members of Congress in all kinds of ways, mm -hmm. um, to now being a fully professionalized organization that has, you know, several dozen people on staff. Um, Ezra Levin and Leah Greenberg, who are my friends who were the co-exec directors of it, uh, were just, you know, named at times like top 100 most influential people list. Um, it's an organization that grew out of this like recognition that the thing that was going to get us through the Trump era and out of it, hopefully, into, you know, something on the left that can mirror or perhaps surpass the success of the conservative movement mm -hmm. was going to come through solidarity and organizing and not through um, this sort of technocracy and this belief that we could innovate or technologize our way out of these problems we've created right. for ourselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that, that innovation, uh, whenever the, the AIA convention is coming up, and uh, usually I go every year, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it this year, but you know, the, I'm always I'm always shook by all of the talk about how, <laughs> like ev every year, it's like the innovation is going to solve solve urban problems, and uh, you know, 
every year I'm like, do people ever like, like just look about like, it, it always feels fresh somehow. But then if you like think about it and you go with like a little bit of a critical disposition, you realize like, no, this is just like every, every year since I've been going, it's the same sort of, same sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, for me, I'm never quite sure if it's people who earnestly believe that like, you know, a slightly improved energy efficiency system in a house or a slightly, you know, more efficient landscape remediation, like program or technology is going to really get us out of this. Or if it's just, again, <laughs> that like they've sunk so much brand capital into their firm's yeah. ability to market themselves as doing this, that they have no choice but to either keep doing that or like dissolve the firm and they're not going to dissolve the firm. So they keep doing it. Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's also like a way, a way of sort of like, uh, and it is, I feel. I also feel it's very psychological and sort of like you know, this is how how you kind of uh, bridge the cognitive dissonance of sort of, you know, what's going on in the world with like your your own your own sight in it. It's usually, I mean, I, and I, and I think too, it it really. Um, uh, sort of underscores the importance of having a kind of structural approach to to change making, because you know I I I I think that in more cases than not those folks are kind of earnest about what they believe, but like you know th- we're talking about the professional societies, you know they 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 at, at the end of the day they end up like representing a very particular set of interests that are kind oh. of like m- they're not even like capitalist interests per se they're they're managerial interests it's a, it's a very particular sort of milieu that has the power in those groups because you know the memberships are much bigger and and so they they and that's why i think the architecture lobby has been able to kind of pressure so effectively in in the aia is because i mean the AIA is huge but you have a lot of managers who kind of want to be like cool for lack of a, a, better, <laughs> a better word and like you know have this kind of self-image and 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 um you know like we're, so we're able to kind of have some wiggle room where we might not otherwise i mean i was really kind of shook by <laughs> by the kind of your 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 recounting in in the places piece of you know you're 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 talking with the the president of the american society of <laughs> landscape architects who who referred to the green new deal as uh, what was it like that the that green that green that plan, green plan. yeah yeah <laughs> i mean that was the moment for me where i like almost lost it right where yeah. this is the, the president of the american society of landscape architects who i'm sure is a very nice man um i don't think you'd get to a position like that without being like friendly and affable sure but who felt the need um to really forcefully condemn a thing he He'd clearly not even bothered to learn the name of, um, and you know, I this this was clear to me before that happened, but it was really I think foregrounded for me. And I'm, I know this has been part of the lobby strategy too. Is just that like there's a limit to how much we can expect our professional associations to do, right? right. Like AIA, ASLA are not equipped to lead on this stuff, despite what they might want to put out in their press releases. They are not going to be the ones who push the profession to do better and more around not just climate change, but you know, getting involved into the political world. Uh, in different ways. And I think importantly, too, treating this moment as like something that isn't anomalous. And I think right. that's that's the thing that actually, I think, frightens me the most about where design might head should we prevail in 2020, mm. is that there'll be an impulse, not just here, but everywhere, but in design, too, to, to treat the Trump administration and Donald Trump himself as anomalous. Right. Um, and not as a symptom of a broader conservative movement and a broader, a broader ideology embedded in um, parts of the Democratic Party as well, the folks who are on the technocracy and neoliberalist uh, sort of wing of the party, yeah. 
who, you know, have in many ways enabled the situation we now find ourselves in. And for me, I think the biggest danger would be that we, you know, we pour a little bit of time and energy into um, the politics of design and organizing for the next couple of years. We win in 2020, and then we all sort of wash our hands of the situation right. and, and think that everything is now fixed and ready to go. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I share that fear. And I, and I also, you know, when I'm thinking about the kind of, uh, like, Th- that set of managerial interest, you know, it's it, for them, the the Green New Deal might be something desirable because it means lots of money, but okay. they want a very particular sort of incarnation of that. I think like they would be absolutely kind of content with uh, the Green New Deal basically being a kind of giant money funnel into public-private partnerships and things like this. And now, you know, you, you talked about it a little bit already, but but you advocate for something kind of en- entirely entirely different. Yeah, I mean, this, this goes back to this idea, right, that I think we need more pathways for people coming out of design schools mm-hmm. to, to sort of find their, find their way into. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, if we're going to do something at the scale of the challenge of climate change, whether it's through a Green New Deal or some yet-to-be-determined sort of competitive idea or proposal, mm-hmm. it's going to require a much larger, better-funded um, and more proactive public sector. It's not going to come by funneling more money into the private sector. I mean, this has been, again, like every, every time we have kind of a stunted infrastructure week at the White House, which I think we're on like our 30th infrastructure week or so, um, <laughs> it's the one thing where like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi seem like publicly willing to work with the president on. Um, I also get really nervous because that, I mean, that this is, it's falling into the kind of trap that you're, you're sort of setting out, right? Yeah. Where, wherein we would just treat the central government as a bank for private interests to do whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it will probably be a net positive for, you know, issues related to climate and justice. Much of it will not. Um, I think we're not, again, we're not going to be able to control what happens unless there's a, an expansion uh, of the public sector and a public ownership of the land that we're talking about intervening within. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's going to mean that we have a, a second generation of alphabet agencies, which is kind of where I start to lean in that in the places essay um, that you could imagine something like a 21st century resettlement authority whose job like it was uh, during the FDR administration um, was to resettle then environmental refugees from the Dust Bowl. But for us will be climate refugees, both within and coming to the United States because they're displaced for all kinds of reasons related to climate. Um, it, it could be that we have a sort of expansion of, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers, which, you know, is really a singular force around mm-hmm. climate adaptation in the United States. There's no piece of sort of water based or water adjacent infrastructure that we can build without the core. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all kinds of things that we could we could tweak about the core to make their operations better and easier for them to implement. I think if you've ever talked to someone who works at the core in any of their district offices, they, they get very viscerally the limits that have been imposed mm-hmm. on them by Congress. Um, but it's also going to require that we expand the scope and staffing and everything else of the Army Corps. Um, and that's a place, those are places where it's really obvious that designers coming out of school who don't envision themselves as working at AECOM or BIG or wherever, or even like the really interesting and like innovative practices like SCAPE. Yeah. or D-Land or um, Gang Studio or, or Studio Gang or any, any of those places, um, that they might want to go work in the public sector. Um, but we have to have, one, jobs for them to do it. And as professions, we also have to find ways to valorize people who choose to go that route. Right. Um, one of the more frustrating parts about, you know, it's been different for me the last few years at Penn where I, I feel like I have a really strong support system. But before that, coming out of, um, you know, 
doing political organizing work and then working at the White House. Um, I think the view of most designers of that kind of work was like, that's great, but it's not design. Uh, um, and I think we were going to, this is something that Peggy Deemer, who um, I know you know well and has done mm -hmm. lots of work with and for uh, the architecture lobby, I think really nails it, is that she talks a lot about deprofessionalizing architecture. Yeah. And whether or not we actually get to that point, I do think we need a more inclusive and expansive definition of what counts as landscape architecture, what counts as architecture, what counts as design. Mm -hmm. Um, planning has done this much better than the rest of the design disciplines in which they've sort of recognized that um, everyday people, citizens are doing planning work in many of the different like aspects of their lives. It's true of landscape architecture and architecture too. We just don't call it that because people don't have a license or a degree or a certificate or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. and even if they do, they might be doing it at a nonprofit or in a, a government sector where, you know, we might think of it as allied work, but not real landscape architecture work <laughs> or not real right. architecture work. Um, and that's a huge problem. And that is something actually that ASLA and AIA could do something about like right now and tomorrow, which is kind of what I point out in the piece is that, you know, we have all of these awards for, um, boutique and, and mega firms doing, projects of sort of questionable impact all over the world um, to go, you know, build a, a constructed wetland on top that's a tenth of the size of the wetland that was drained in China that, you know, a city was built on might win a national ASLA award. Um, but someone who's working, um, you know, in the Army Corps district in Galveston doing really interesting dune nourishment and wetland restoration projects across the whole of the Gulf Coast um, might not have their work counted as landscape architecture. And I, I think, you know, that's a problem, and it's one that's really easy. ASLA just has to decide to fix it. <laughs> right, right. And and this this seems kind of related to the kind of no notion of politicizing the profession that you kind of lay out. So like, what what, do you, what exactly do you, do you mean by kind of politicizing the profession? Yeah, well, I mean, we can sort of begin, I think, you know, I think about this because I'm from rural Arkansas, Um my extended family and my in-laws are overwhelmingly conservative. Um, many of them voted for and are still, you know, standing Donald Trump when I when they want to talk about it. Yeah, um, <laughs> same. But for the, shout but, out, shout out to my pops who's probably listening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thankfully, my parents have been converted. But you know, my dad in 2008, the first Democrat he ever voted for in his life was Barack Obama, and I think you know the Bush administration really broke his back on you know identifying mm -hmm. as a Republican, mm -hmm. um, which is totally understandable. My parents at the time. Uh, we're in that first wave of homeowners who were about to be foreclosed upon and lose the only home they'd ever owned. And um, I think I'd watched that party really take everything they possibly could from folks like them. Um, but I think about for them, you know, when my dad and I talked about it like 10 years ago and where we come down on it now is that, you know, I too long for a day in which there are at least two parties and maybe like three or four or five, like most of the rest of the world, where um, we agree on some basic like things about the world. We might not agree about the best way to address them. That's where you can have like a conversation about markets versus public sector action, or you can have a conversation about the right kind of public intervention as opposed mm. to like just public versus private. Um, but you can imagine like a world in which there are two or three or four parties in this country that agree that climate change is an existential threat um, to everything we know and care about in this world. And that the only way to address it is through massive investments and collective action led by the public sector. Mm -hmm. And then it's a question of what those actions are and the best ones to, to go after first and what the sequencing is and all of those kinds of things. Um, but we don't live in that world. Um, we live in a world in which, you know, we have two major parties in this country, one of which 
is the only organized group of people on the entire planet who do not believe in climate change, and that's American Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I, you know, hope and wish that one day they, they as a party will figure out the scale and scope of the problem and be able to diagnose it in a way that is defensible for more than like three seconds in a meme, um, <laughs> you know, that's not where we are. And I think we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're taking a, a political position by um, already sort of saying that we have to appeal to both of those sides yeah. um, because there aren't two sides of like the climate change question or the climate climate action problem. And certainly not in this country. And one of those sides is, you know, in theory, populated by American Republicans um, because they're never going to come along with us. I think the thing that's most exciting about the Green New Deal, the thing that has been most, I think, heartening about my my time with Indivisible has been around this investment in mass mobilization and mm-hmm. organizing. And the idea that, like, you know, we're not going to convert many people um, on the mm-hmm. far right to our, you know, to to vote with us in the way we would want them to vote with us. And that's OK. I don't mean that as a way to, like, demonize or other them, because, again, like I'm from rural Arkansas. These are my people. I'm like watching all week long here as my hometown of Fort Smith floods yeah. uh, and levees break. And, you know, all of my friends and neighbors have their their lives and livelihoods washed away. Um, those are people who get climate change in visceral ways and for many, many reasons do not talk about it or think about it in the same way that I might. And that's yeah. totally fine. They're actually probably going to be the ones who benefit the most from something like a Green New Deal. Um, but I do mean that like ASLA and AIA don't have to waste time um, pretending that if they just like put out the right press release, if they just like <laughs> get the wording just right in this report, or they like find a way to like appeal or throw like some bone to some conservative members by doing X, Y, or Z that they'll cobble together this like mythical bipartisan coalition for climate action that has never and will never exist. Um, And so we can work towards, you know, winning some of those people over on the other side. But I think if if we take seriously the claim that we really have about 10 years to get this right, um, I don't think we have a lot of time to waste. And I think, most of most of what we can do uh, quickly and rat- quickly and at scale is going to come by mobilizing people who are probably already in agreement with us, but for lots of reasons have felt locked out of or disinterested in the political system for a long time. Um, and you know, this is a thing ASLA has tried to do. You know, with their Green New Deal statement, right? As they tried to put out a statement that really walked that line between what. I think folks like you and I might have really wanted them to say, which is to like wholeheartedly lean into and support and throw all their resources okay. behind pushing this thing through um, and like throwing a bone to their more, the membership is fairly conservative phrase, mm-hmm. like throwing a bone to those members and saying like, well, we agree on like the technological aspects of this for clean energy and public works and infrastructure. But there's also a whole lot in the Green New Deal about social justice and a jobs guarantee and Medicare for all and all these other things that we think are controversial and don't want to take, don't want to take a position on. Right. So we're going to put out a statement that like tries to do all of those different things and actually just makes everyone mad at you. <laughs> right. um, this is like, you know, if, if they had someone advice, if I, if they ever wanted me to, if they're listening, I'm happy to look over press releases for you. I will do that pro bono. Um, you, you chose the worst possible like thing you could put out in which you made everyone mad. Um, and they would have been better off not saying anything. Yeah. Uh, Frankly, at that point, they did because they felt pressured to, partially because of that, you know, interaction we were talking about with ASLA's president, um, Sean Kelly, you know, half of their board, their um, CEO board, which I forget what it's called, 
um, or CEO roundtable was there in attendance at the conference and they were texting the ASLA staff while he and I were kind of sniping at each other to be like, why aren't you saying anything about the Green New Deal? Right. And that's, that's what pressured them to put the statement out. They just bungled it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So- sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think um, one of one of the things that I'm really excited about is is the kind of uh, the conference that you're organizing that's coming up. The uh, I, and I and I, I know in, in September in Philly, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I noted that like uh, Naomi Klein is going to be there as well as Jane McAlevey, and yeah. I I can't think of like you know I, it's 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 so amazing that there's going to be a kind of conversation about design and designers and sort of all these issues that 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 includes Jane McAlevey and Naomi Klein. Uh, for those who don't know, Jane McAlevey, um, a, a labor organizer who's written um, a handful of, of like vitally important books um, no shortcuts is is a, mm-hmm. is a crucial read I think for anyone who's interested in left politics in this moment um, and and Naomi Klein who was who's one of the people who radicalized me re- reading sort of uh, the shock doctrine yeah. as, as, a, as a high schooler was 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 kind of really important so um yeah so i'm 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 sort of i'm i'm i don't really have a question so much <laughs> as as like a, you know just a kind of comment about how i think that uh you know having having a kind of multifaceted conversation like that you know is kind of one of the ways in which those more kind of rich and and, and developed uh organizational connections and overlaps uh kind of come about right and so yeah um i'm I'm kind of curious what what you're what you're hoping to to get maybe out of out of out of this meeting yeah well let me let me start just by saying you know this is a a, this this event is sort of kicking off a a longer term bit of research and coursework and supplemental programming we'll sort of announce later this summer within the McCarg Center. So so after this anniversary celebration in June, my job really is to sort of organize uh, all the various bits of research going on in the landscape architecture department here. Um, one of those big focus areas will be on design and the Green New Deal. And this event is really, you know, envisioned as a kickoff for all of that. Mm. And it's being organized with um, Daniel Aldana Cohen, who is a sociology professor at Penn and a really prolific writer. He's written about housing and the Green New Deal for Jacobin and The Guardian and Descent and lots of other places, um, and as well as Kate Aronoff, who uh, she's a staff writer at The Intercept, um, just finished a really interesting book on social um, democratic organizing mm-hmm. and has really been like the lead author of Around the Green New Deal uh, out there in the sort of public world. Um, and when we sort of when we put together our dream list of people to invite for this, I think we, we had all these people on there that you see on the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look forward to us on Eventbrite. It's called Designing the Green New Deal. Um, and we thought maybe we'd get like half of them and it would cost us a ton of money to get all of them. And they all pretty much said yes within like 10 minutes of emailing <laughs> to ask. And they all like were cool to come, even if it meant they weren't getting an honorarium, which for some of those people is kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, Naomi Klein is as big an aim as there is for something like this. And for, for her to be cool with coming, you know, whether or not we're able to offer any kind of big honorarium is, is a really big deal. And I think talks or speaks to the importance of this topic. Yeah. Um, and for us, as we were sitting down to think about what it was that we might be able to insert, add to, you know, a conversation around the Green New Deal um, that Kate and Daniel and I were already kind of involved in in kind of small, various ways um, with lots of other people. What became really clear is that they didn't have anyone in their sort of inner circle, and by they I'm talking now about 
um, sort of both AOC's staff, but also Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who runs New Consensus, which is a sort of off-the-hill think tank that's running the policy development for the Green New Deal between mm -hmm. AOC's office and all the various partners that they're working with. Um, but they didn't have anyone who was thinking about the built environment and design and infrastructure and public works, at least not in the ways that we might. They were thinking about national economic policy, workforce development and labor policy, but not about the projects through which this thing will be realized and experienced and, and understood by most people. Yeah. Um, and so when we thought about how to frame the event, that really became the hook for us. That became a, a really easy idea to sell to faculty and students here as a way to organize some research in the school. Um, and this event became a way for us to kick all of that off. Um, it's going to be tied to uh, an advanced graduate interdisciplinary studio I'll teach with Richard Weller in the fall here and possibly with some others. I think um, Reinhold Martin at Columbia is going to run a similar studio in architecture. Um, it's possible Forbes Lipschitz at Ohio State will do a similar project uh, around agricultural landscapes um, that we'll, we'll find some way to intersect with. Um, but for us, this really became, you know, a great vehicle for like planting a flag that actually design does care a lot about this topic. Um, and this place in particular, Penn cares about complicating it with by wading into the real messiness of politics and organizing around something as sort of ambitious and wild yeah. um, and outlandish as a Green New Deal. Um, and for us, we're just really excited to get everybody here. I think we've been kind of, we haven't announced our special guests yet, and I can't do that on here because we haven't, <laughs> it's not 100% confirmed. Um, but, you know, we've been watching the registration tick up for this. We're in the biggest room on campus. It holds about 1,300 people. We've already filled up about 800 of those spots. So if you're going to come, Kiefer, you and your friends from Chicago, yeah. should, like, do it soon. You should RSVP soon. I think you already have, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll load up the, uh, we'll load up the station wagon and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we have we'll, people doing that. Yeah, yeah. There's, 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 a, there's a cadre coming down from Rhode Island with, um, Damien, uh, White there. Um, who's I think also going to run a studio on this at RISD. Um, there'll be there'll be contingents from all over. Uh, we're really excited to get folks here for it. We we know it'll be the biggest event in the design school at Penn next year. It'll probably wind up being the biggest one on campus. Period. Um, and we feel like it's something where design has an obligation to really take some to have a role. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be. A, we don't have to center ourselves. It doesn't have to be a leadership role. But we can convene really smart people around the future, uh, a new public, a new public works agenda for a Green New Deal. And that's kind of what we're intending to do with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. Um, Billy, thanks so much again to, for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, let's let's wade into that messy green plan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having yeah. me. I'll come back anytime. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Billy. Thanks so much, Billy. And by the way, for those of you following along at home, Liverpool are up one nothing. That's right. On top. Right. They scored in the first minute. Come on, Mo. We'll be back. All right. We are back with Billings on Air, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture. Uh, and yeah. What and sometimes a, European and football. And sometimes European football. And uh, yeah, what a, what a fantastic conversation with Billy. And I'm, I'm happy to be following it up with uh, Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Watson of the Architecture Lobby in New York. Uh, Caitlin, who's been uh, uh, a very active member in the Architecture Lobby's Green New Deal working group. Uh, Caitlin, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to kind of have a, a double discussion on Green New Deal because I think the lobby has been up to some really interesting work. Um, so my question really is, how is the architecture lobby mobilizing for the Green New Deal? And, uh, like, what opportunities and challenges do you see for architects getting involved in sort of policy issues like this? 
Yeah, so so the lobby is very excited about the Green New Deal because we feel that it really encompasses a lot of the issues that are at the core of our mission, which are fair and just labor practices, uh, creating solidarity between uh, between workers and between workers and allied professions, and really empowering architects to recognize what our agency is and to utilize it, um, as well as shifting the way that uh, culture evaluates design mm. um, and sort of trying to move past uh, buildings as real estate and looking at what their cultural, social, and environmental value is. And so um, the Green New Deal is really a vehicle for that. Mm. Um, and so we've been thinking about uh, how we can work towards developing the Green New Deal and uh, working as a bridge between communities and policymakers. So um, what we really started with doing in the New York chapter and in the lobby generally was um, once HR 109 came out, we started with a close reading of it um, mm. and really trying to identify what the key issues are uh, that could be looked at through the lens of architecture or that implicate the architectural profession mm, um, directly. Um, so we've been using that as a framework to start to see um, yeah, what, what we can do, what we need to do. Um, so we are working on uh, issuing a statement shortly, later this week. So look out for that. Uh, that'll be based on the conversations and research that we've been doing um, among the members of the lobby to start to identify what those changes are. Um, yeah. So, so, and then, and, and so the statement's going to happen and, and, um, you know, I, I haven't seen any drafts of it or anything yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of uh, reading it. So what what were the kind of crucial issues? If you can give us like <laughs> maybe a little yeah. a little preview. Yeah, brief, brief summary. So outline form. Uh, we've really identified six major points that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, so the first one and the one that sort of guides everything else being uh, agency. Hmm. So um, looking at really what is our agency and... Uh, we've distilled that down to needing to expand our practice, mm. um, to engage in policy making and in government directly, mm-hmm. um, and also our, our ability to refuse work and yeah. to collectively um, mobilize and to uh, to think as a profession what we what we really should be doing and what we can contribute. Then um, we've also looked at housing because we think that housing is going to be just a super important uh, part of any any Green New Deal. Um, and Daniel Adana-Cohen, of course, has written beautifully about that. Uh, but we think that some sort of housing guarantee that addresses um, access to housing, which is, you know, the displacement of communities and the creation of healthy, sustainable communities, uh, is going to be radically threatened by climate change mm-hmm. and things are only getting worse and will deepen the housing crisis that we're in. So that is an important topic that we want to address. Yeah. Um, and then we've also been thinking about resiliency and sort of redefining resiliency. Um, so there's a lot of talk generally in the profession about infrastructure, right? And in the Green New Deal and in the resolution, there's a lot of talk about infrastructure, but we've really been thinking about um, before looking at any physical infrastructure, the sort of uh, revamping of our social infrastructure that's called for by um, by the Green New Deal and um, in response to the climate crisis. So 
using changes in social infrastructure to drive what it is we do with our physical infrastructure rather than just repairing and replacing what we have as it is because um, that's just not going to cut it. Sure. Um, we've also looked at technology as a big point. So reshaping our relationship to technology and to innovation where innovation is not just making something new for the sake of making something new, but really thinking about how that can serve society as a whole. Um, and then, of course, labor and sustainable labor practices broadly, but also within the practice and mm -hmm. what changes are going to have to happen in the practice in terms of removing barriers for entry. And I think what Billy said about creating more pathways for people in the profession and um, trying to expand our definition of, of what architecture is to sort of devalorize it so yeah. that it can become a force for good instead of just, you know. Yeah. Being what it is, <laughs> what, what it has become. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I know that there's a kind of uh, scheduled conversation uh, that the New York chapter of the lobby is going to have about sort of activists and organizing strategies more broadly. I think that's kind of a conversation about that we're, we're having continuously in the lobby is sort of, you know, wh like, what are the stakes? Like, where is our agency? And how do we kind of like insert ourselves into broader movements? Um, and things like this and, and help out with broader movements. Uh, so, so uh, you know, the, the statement is going to happen. And, and I'm curious, uh, you know, I, so that's just to say that there might not be a perfect answer for this, but I'm curious where you see the kind of Green New Deal working group uh, go, going next after this sort of, um, you know, statement of intent. Uh, how, how do you see that, that work um, kind of uh, maybe impacting some of the, the kind of policy discussions that'll be, that'll be coming up? Definitely. So, so we've been using this period of time as a chance to uh, develop our, our way of thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. And a sort of a strategy. But moving forward, we, we are participating actually as a sponsor in the UPenn conference, um, which we just heard about from Billy. Mm -hmm. And we are hoping that that will give us an opportunity to uh, expand our outreach to students and practitioners who may be interested in the cause and also in um, beginning to work with some interdisciplinary collaborators. Mm -hmm. um, and we've also been trying to uh, mobilize with different groups uh, now, like Science for the People we're doing some work with. So we're trying to find organizations that we can partner with to um, collaborate and to really begin to do critical writing and research, but also to uh, identify what the opportunities are for advancing actual policy and legislation. To, so to really dive into that yeah. um, in a way that that we don't usually get to. Yeah, which is just like so exciting and so cool. Like if I can just like gush for <laughs> for like a minute. I mean, like you know, I I think that uh, I think that like you know the the greatest thing about the architecture lobby. I mean, not to be like a booster. Like I'm not, this show is always boosting the architecture lobby, um, but you know. The, the Green New Deal working group is 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 kind of I mean it's it's not like uh, 
were kind of experts or like situated in the kind of halls of, of power. I mean, I think that, you know, these were folks from, you know, the, the, the desk next door, <laughs> right. Who, who are kind of uh, becoming expert on these things and, and, and kind of really organizing to, to make sure that um, this stuff can, can make change and that, 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 that our voices are kind of represented, um, which is, which is just a really like unique and, and kind of cool, thing um, so I'm, I'm I'm curious sort of what you know I, we talk a lot about organizing on this show I'm wondering if you can kind of like give us the 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 the, the picture of what that means in the lot like in the lobby uh, working group yeah so right now we're, we're we're kind of trying to figure out exactly what that's going to mean and mm-hmm. so I think that's been a lot of our um, our initial sort of push to find organizations who who do organizing regularly yeah. that that we can partner with that can really um, help us to develop that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that is one of the things that is that is difficult in becoming uh, engaged in policy making in particular is that uh, we do have a sort of lack of education in that as designers we're not really trained how to um how to do policy making or how to get involved um how to know where to start and so um you know we we acknowledge that that is not what what our training is and so we're trying to find people that um that understand where we're coming from and that can help us to uh move that forward and then from there we're you know trying to identify what the issues are um and that'll set up uh, sort of a framework for local chapters across the nation um, to be able to to figure out what the pieces of policy are that are um, that are unique to them. Because I mean, that's sort of the thing about the Green New Deal, right? Is that mm-hmm. uh, climate change is it's really a it's a global thing, but it's also a very local thing. And yeah. the way that we need to address it is going to be different in different places. And so, um, you know, that's something that we really want to take this from being something that we're doing in the working group to something that then gets dispersed out into um, all of the chapter, all of the chapters so mm-hmm. that um, we're all able to really start to work with local communities and with local government to think about um, what these things mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that, that work is often like not, not very, it's not nearly as exciting as like a design competition or something. <laughs> nearly <laughs> but, as straightforward. No, no. Uh, but, but, but it has its, its own sort of uh, uh, like um, pleasures and camaraderies and, and kind of, f- it, it can be f- like fun and rewarding in its, in its own way, I think. Um, so and I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how, how do people get involved with, with this? Uh, so, I mean, you can join the lobby for one, mm-hmm. um, it, but there's also things that you can start to do in terms of, you know, joining your local community board mm-hmm. and writing to representatives about particular issues that, that affect your community, um, advocating for your own working conditions. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot in terms of just really beginning to get connected and to get involved and to, to find your voice. Yeah. Well, so. that's a, I think that's a, that's a wonderful sentiment to uh, to end, end on here. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to, <laughs> to read the statement and uh, see what else the, the Green New Deal Working Group comes up with. Great. Thanks, Keeper. 
Hey, good afternoon, and welcome back to the second hour of Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. And now for your host, Mr. Kiefer Dunn. What's up? What's up? You're back with Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture. And sometimes European football. And sometimes European football, especially today. Jamie, what's the what's the update? Uh, live from Spain, it is currently Liverpool 1, Tottenham 0 yes. as we start the second half. It's been a poor quality game, to be honest with you. Uh, aside from a handball that gave Mohamed Salah a penalty kick in the second minute, there's been very little to remark upon. Yeah. All and right. I've watched every second of it. <laughs> we, we appreciate it uh, very Thank much. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Doing it for the cause. It is. Thank yeah. It's, it's the Lord's work, truly. It is the Lord's work. <laughs> Angelia's over there going, what are you guys <laughs> talking about? You're the one wearing yeah. a jumpsuit, not me. It is functional and practical. Yeah. I'm a pro jumpsuit. Yeah. I'm pro European football. A, 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 a thematically green jumpsuit, I should add. Uh, Ooh, it's a master's jumpsuit. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say a Green Good. New Deal jumpsuit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> Keeper's also in green today. That's right. I, I didn't We're even plan That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, so wearing green for the Green New Deal. Um, and, and this piece uh, that we're going to discuss in, in our – I don't know if I actually properly introduced this segment. This is a f- a Fun and Angry with Anjuli Rao. Uh, this is the segment where we re- review uh, the discourse, um, and which, I, which I always really appreciate because, you know, there's lots of hot takes. And I don't know that we offer like fully like cool, like reason through <laughs> I know. But they're like medium cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like a medium, think, medium cool, medium temperate takes. Yes, I think that it's sort of like when you have a cake and you take it out of the oven and it sits for like 15 minutes. Yeah. And so it's just warm enough to where if you flip it, it'll kind of come <laughs> apart. Uh, yeah. And But, you know, that's, yeah. I think those are the we're, we're starting which to is, solidify on some thematic issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that is, which is the, the best kind of cake. Yes. That's the best time to eat a cake. Yeah, so but do not frost right, it. And it's the, <laughs> right. And that's the best kind of take to have. I think that metaphor holds up. Unfrosted, but feels good. Yes. Going down. Yeah. Cool. So today uh, we are reviewing this piece uh, by Ollie Wainwright um, in The Guardian. Uh, Is this going to be a joyous place? Uh, The architects asking revolutionary questions. Um, and I think like it's it, this is not a piece that's sort of explicitly about the Green New Deal, but we've kind of spent the, the first half of the show talking about how we might expand kind of the, like the public sector uh, and public sector opportunities for architects to really do public facing work mm-hmm. and how, you know, you can't kind of just like NGO <laughs> your way into the public sector. I mean, right. that's fine. But like, you know, we, we need something more robust. And, and, and this piece kind of uh, is, is, you know, just like a nice little summary of, of, of a, a group called Public Practice that's trying to do something similar. I don't know if it's exactly what we're talking about, but yeah, I don't know. So uh, what would what, what, you make of this? Is that what's what's the summary? Yeah, I mean, OK, so essentially Ollie gives co- I'm going to call him by his first name. Ollie. What's up, Ollie? Ollie, come on, buildings uh, on there. I don't, I don't know you, but uh, we're on a first name basis. Yeah, it's yeah. just too fun. Um, so Ollie sort of walks through this, um, the structure of an organization um, in the UK that does, is working on one specific very large urban planning pro- or planning project um, that really has, on a scale that really hasn't been seen in a very long time, mm. and does, walks through the structure of this organization Um in a way that sort of breaks down how uh, this cohort is sort of recruited, um, how these individuals have been working for a couple of years in like 
um, sort of what I just kind of feel like it's like a remediation of a a public sector planning that has just died. And um, he brings up this uh, kind of a starting statistic that, um, you know, there was a very large percentage of. uh, I I have it here. Uh, In 1979, 49% of qualified architects in the UK worked in the public sector. That figure is now 0.7%. Like Walla Wiwa. Like what a what a what a thing Margaret Thatcher did. Thanks, Thatcher. Yeah, <laughs> um, I know. I have, uh, and you know, it's sort of coupled with the idea that, like, while public sector funding to hire these kinds of designers has gone down, um, you also see the value engineering um, of actual, you know, material planning going down yeah. too, um, which you know is is we see all the time as well in the United States. Um, I did, yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that parallel, but I also enjoyed the fact that um, Ollie used the word, he was talking about like how people sort of meet, how these designers are meeting with, in, you know, amongst their sectors and mm. uses the word Fortnite. I don't know. <laughs> it's very British. But okay, this is a different kind of paper. Um, but yeah, there's, um, I don't know. I just, I, the one thing I didn't like is that the, right, the kicker of the piece is like this um, designer asking, will this be a joyous place? And sort of yeah. in the context of developers thinking I'm a, quote, nutter, because uh, <laughs> I'm asking that question. But really, the piece doesn't actually address, like, if they're creating, like, how they're infusing joy into right. their work. But instead, it actually more talks about, like, the structure of um, how these designers are sort of interacting with each other and mm-hmm. with um, existing, what they call, like, township committees, kind of, like, mm-hmm. the bureaucratic systems that are have been in place that have been carrying out these like urban interventions for a very long time and kind of sucking at it Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i i was a little disappointed that it wasn't it didn't really talk about the idea of what a joyous place is Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like what does it look like and what does it feel like Mm -hmm. and so uh you know i i really enjoy learning about this this initiative a lot and now i have like a a much more robust understanding of public practice yeah which is cool yeah um, but I, what I really like do desire from like almost every single piece of journalism about, especially about urban planning is like, what does a joyous place feel like? And what does an, uh, an unhappy place feel like? Like how do, how do we suffer under like the tyranny of urban planning and yeah. bad urban planning? And I think that it's the job of a writer in some degree in a word count to really provide us with just what that feels like. Yeah. like what does it feel like to, um, whether it means... Uh, you know, that sidewalks in some places just sort of drop off, right? Like, I'll just be walking down the street, so I'm like, where's the sidewalk? And I have to cross a busy road in order to catch that sidewalk again. Like, that's those sorts of, like, momentary planning anxieties, that those are a result of budget cuts. It's a result of um, a lack of, uh, you know, bureaucratic value on actually building places that are for people. Yeah. And so how do we experience that? Because most of the time, I'd say that a lot of people who just live in cities and townships and who just like actually are in the world um, experience these things, but don't necessarily always have the language to talk about yeah. it. And therefore, they don't really get involved in that process. Yeah. So I I would love to have more descriptions, especially in this like specific town that they're working in. Like, what yeah. did it feel like before, <laughs> though? Like, what was it like? Yeah. 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 I, I thought it was I, I had a similar thing 
thought. I was like, it's really nice because this really is more of a piece of sort of reporting than than a kind of, you know, uh, than anything else. And and I thought that it was it was really novel and cool to see kind of the reporting of like this is how this comes to you. And I I think it, uh, you know how 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 like this kind this type of design happens. Um, and I and I I did too yearn for the the kind of I don't know thing to go full circle. Mm-hmm. Um, Word but, counts a problem. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we need to hold the uh, the the, the edit- editors at the Guardian Just give me to an account. Anecdote, yeah, right. Right. Like in this town of Luxfordshire or whatever. Like, <laughs> by the way, have you guys ever met any of the editors at the Guardian? Because I, I worked for the Guardian oh, yeah. for a number of oh, years. You did? Yes, I did. In the, in the sports section, and they're they're nice people, but they're not known for their editing. I see. They're they're jokingly called the Grani ad because they have so many typos in it. Yeah. So you guys should keep that in mind. I perhaps. will no, noted. No sympathy. I, I'm just happy that we've we've uh, invented this new place Luxfordshire which is <laughs> which Luxford. I think I hear it's very luxurious yeah. and, and in the Shire yes yeah. right uh, yeah, I excellent. think building buildings on air broadcasts from Luxford it's the fictional the fictional home it's next to Porch Bridge yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you might get an area for that one <laughs> Oh, I love it. Um, anyway, yeah. So, like, but what what were what were they struggling with for a long time? What were you know they they're building this brand like thousands of new homes is what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, to to what end? What mm-hmm. is the goal there? Um, are they experiencing a housing crisis? Are they experiencing a public safety crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, is like what kind of challenges sort of it And granted, like I could have done this research. I've had a very sleepy week, but um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah. So um, I really. I, I appreciated the fact that a lot of it was very much focused on the participants, right? There is like this lovely quote, like, I've come in with fresh eyes, says Braddock. So I'm asking naive questions about why things are done in a certain way, which sometimes makes people think of doing things differently. And like the, the notion that these like p- planners and designers and architects are walking into these situations where they're like sort of post-trauma of the private sector architecture oh, world yeah. and walking and being like, suddenly I'm like, actually getting to talk to people. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then it's funny too because then like the ripple effect of that is that um, these kind of like what I imagine to be very mostly because I've been like watching the Queen. I don't know. Um, these yeah. like stiff British bureaucrats or whatever. They're like finally meeting people in other departments because they've never communicated with them before. Yeah. And like this is sort of detailed in this article that um, there are, you know, policymakers and there are not just policymakers but like office paper pushers who are finally getting to understand the full extent of their own city's departments. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting because they you know really this 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 initiative public practice, you know, is kind of re- started in it seems in kind of recognition of the fact that, you know, public service was like not a kind of interesting pathway. It was not an interesting thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so if you create a kind of like well-paid like f- fellowship that had a very wide and sort of like open scope of like, you know, you you are interesting designer they have many different kinds of designers and folks involved in this program like we're going to kind of place you in a public agency of some kind and you're going to kind of use your fresh eyes uh well there's something else though that you guys because you're not british you don't know there's a big class thing actually so the civil servants traditionally was for the well-educated middle class kids Mm -hmm. so if you when you're talking about people that don't know anything about it those are the the actual people that are elected they're the elected officials in the house of lords in the house Commons, they tend to be from the upper crust. The the what are called public schools, but are actually private schools. <laughs> right. Eden, Oxford, all those places. Um, 
the people below them actually who actually run the government, the civil servants, are largely middle class smart kids who got into public policy and public practice. And unfortunately, they're completely shut off from the levers of power by the people who are elected, who tend to be of a completely different class. Mm -hmm. And the two classes don't mix, which is a really peculiar thing and has been very damaging in austerity Britain. I'm I'm sure you guys saw the UN survey about how one-fifth of the country is now in poverty due to the slashing of the civil service. Yeah, Yeah, it's shocking. And that's a, a subtext to the article you're referring to that I don't think is really made clear to American audiences. Like we over here... We have a different sort of government service and people go into public service here and we talk about it in certain ways. But over there, you really are on a kind of a class path out Mm -hmm. of school and you you can't jump the track. And so that is kind of where some of this comes from. So they're like actually slashing like local municipality. Exactly. So when austerity came in, um, it started under the the conservative government, obviously. But when David Cameron put in the first real austerity budget and then George Osborne uh, continued it, what happened was they cut off, for example, bus routes to local – uh, cities. And this had the effect of, well, it, it didn't cut the services people got, but it cut the ability to get to the services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they used the excuse that the services were being underutilized to cut them. Mm-hmm. And then they gave the underutilization of the services an excuse to close them. And you can yeah. see how this snowballs. Right. So whole towns, especially in the northeast part of, of England, which not coincidentally is a hotbed for Brexit, mm-hmm. has been systematically ruined by a decision to cut off basic services at the parliamentary level in, in London right. um, and affect a whole swaths of people and whole generations of people that have been you know paying an effective 52% tax rate, by the way. Right. We should, should note their taxes did not go down. <laughs> so, you know, but when you cut those civil services, it, you know, people forget about this, but, but Britain is a very different country in the sense that it's connected by rails, and if you don't keep up the rails, people can't get anywhere. It's not a, a large car driving culture. It's a bus culture. It's a, it's a very um, commuter-oriented culture that way. If you take those buses away, people can't get places. Mm-hmm. And you know, because the health service is, is centralized and is public, if you take away the essential services and the GPs for people there, they're screwed because they can't necessarily jump from one town to another to find an obstetrician right. or a geriatric care or palliative care and stuff like that. So that's kind of the subtext of some of the stuff he's talking about, yeah. which, I, which I don't think is necessarily always made um, clear to an American reading The Guardian. Sure. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> that, that's a real subtle thing yeah. that you do have to know about. Yeah. Well, thank, Jamie's just surprises me constantly. Well, I did grow up over there. So this is, you just know. Just constantly surprising me. <laughs> so, yeah. I love it. Uh, well, thank you for that again. I should have done some research. Um, I guess I, I feel silly. No, no, I'm no. Sheepish. i don't be, don't be sheepish. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It's a lovely jumpsuit. <laughs> Um, okay, well, now that we have a deeper understanding of actually, like, the cutting of, yeah. um, you know, misfilled power structures and services, um, that definitely puts this in a different, or not a different, but, like, a more specific light um, and makes, I guess, this work slightly, I guess, I guess it makes it more important yeah. in well, some ways. And to me, I mean, to me, I, I, the way that I understand this is, like, as a, as a, as a kind of, like, transitional program is, like, the, like the starter engine for, mm-hmm. like, a more sort of, like, robust, like, public sector that does what it's supposed to do rather than like you know be the kind of you know leading edge of austerity Mm -hmm. right um which i think is 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 yeah is 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 important and i mean i I think the the model is something that i could see 
like working in the U.S. as a kind of like you know I think I would I would want much more. Right? Yeah, like, I know. I would I would want the kind of like you know what we were talking about with sort of earlier like the kind of revitalization of like broad federal programs that are well funded that can do things <clears throat> at, at big scales. But like but like this like I feel like you know New York City just did like their own kind of mini Green New Deal, right? Mm-hmm. And like you know New York does have like a, a very kind of a much more robust the uh, sort of uh, I don't know like layer of like pub public uh, public architects and designers who, yeah. who work for the city and not for a private sector that's contracted by the city but I could see some like this a, a version of this happening in Chicago where there's a kind of fellowship program to kind of get take take new graduates take people who are kind of you know working in the design professions and not just make them consultants but really make them and you know you embed them. you yeah. embed them it's Jinx. not it's not yeah it's not like the full vote of like you you hire them on but you know a lot of these people are being hired on in, yeah. in kind of these these roles yeah and I, I appreciated the fact that like um ollie sort of goes and like talks a little bit about how some of these folks go in as they go in as a cohort essentially yeah. and they're placed in places and then those people end up being hired actually um because then the municipalities see them as being actually invaluable yeah. um i feel like if this were done in america it would be done through something horrific like teach for america or like you know report for Oof. america or the hands-on core and Vista, like all the, the programs we have here that take young people, um, put them in nonprofit situations, get them into poverty and have them working pretty much from the bottom up for yeah. the, you know, for the long haul in their 20s. Yeah. And I say that as an AmeriCorps alum, like that it's <laughs> it is uh, yeah. a system that doesn't necessarily create great uh, workforces, we get a lot of, you know, look at Teach for America. A lot of pe- people who go through that program leave Teach for America. They leave right. teaching. Right. So to me, it's like, that's how America would do it. It would make me insane, <laughs> right? Like we decided that we needed more journalists in rural counties across um, the country. And we made, quote, report for America where young oh, journalists are going to go. Yeah, it is. They go into Appalachia and God. they are reporters and they're paid like, you know, $800 a month to um, do kind of like rigorous work, especially yeah. like about the the uh, deterioration of the climate and the deterioration of, deterioration of the land. Yeah. Um, anyway, so like that's how we do things in this country. And I think that it's that's yeah. we, we have to just like just get away from that model completely if we are going yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's so it's just so like elitist and mm-hmm. like it just misses like the the it misses the point. Like I you know I think it, it often presumes like oh I mean like what like frankly like what is even like a very smart like you know recently graduated undergrad undergrad student like know about like running like running a classroom like it's a very discreet set of, sk- yeah. of skills and what and, would like, a, you an know, undergrad go, know about going into a community yeah. and saying like well I'm going to be your like local planner what I do I dream about you know in Chicago if we were to like on a micro level mm. um I would dream that um Alderman Rosa for example would hire a planner for his ward he's mm. the ward planner or like a team of ward planners and every move any design move they would have would be a collaborative effort with this team Mm -hmm. kind of working alongside the alderman who's listening to the constituent like i would i have like you know that's a great fantasy of mine um but i don't know i think that 
um, the 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 thing that really jumped out at me about this piece is just the fact that no one really talked to each other before, mm, and now yeah. people are starting to do so. And even there was like a talk about like, and then we went for drinks, and they were surprised that I showed up as a designer because I had been working in like this field, and they never thought they would ever see me. Right, and you know you see that like that idea, right? That two different branches or. Um, departments in a municipal government don't speak to each other is felt in planning, right? When you yeah. look at you look at Chicago, you look at the 606, and this is like my soapbox about lack of communication between government agencies. Um, you go to the far east end of the 606, you get off the trail on your bike, and immediately you're on Marshfield, which is a street that doesn't have a bike lane. And they say like, okay, then you can go right and then turn right mm. onto Cortland. And then suddenly you go from literally a park a horizontal park space that is managed by the Chicago Park District and then you get onto a bike path that is managed by CDOT, the <laughs> Department of Transit. And so there's potholes, glass, gravel everywhere. Mm. And it's like that lack of communication is felt, right, in the built environment. Yeah, They don't talk to each other. Yeah. There was no plan. There was no, like, connective plan to say, like, how do we bridge the tissue between um, an urban park that you can ride your bike in to a public street that um, technically is an infrastructure yeah. for bicycling. Yeah. So, like, you feel that in urban planning. So it's really exciting to, like, hear that just basic communication is yeah, happening. Well, and, and it also, for me, it gets me thinking about, like, uh, the, like, the importance of sort of like another layer of institutions mm -hmm. that connects things that can be a kind of connective tissue. I mean, I think we've seen like really bad examples of that too, like in terms of like, like regional planning bodies, like tend to be kind of like pretty, like, like bankrupt for like lots of different reasons. Like you'd have to like write, a, like we'd have to get like a, <laughs> like, yeah. like a PhD guest uh, or, 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 or someone, someone. You can just say they're emotionally and morally bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, monetarily. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> like w one of the above. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, but but like, you know, some something like this where there's there's a kind of different mission that is like, you know, a little bit more grassrootsy, like I think is, is really useful. I think I think in a lot of ways these can be institutions of kind of workers. I mean, in some ways, like a union or, or like, uh, you know, like any any kind of organization that's organized from the bottom up can fulfill a kind of similar function. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of municipal employees are unionized, but they might be under different you know in different bargaining yes. units and kind of siloed off from each other yeah but um you know like that 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 that, that kind of level of thinking about uh, institutions yeah. is important there was one thing that was said in this this piece that sort of worried me when they're talking about one of the designers she said um i had a certain freedom because no one knew what i was supposed to be doing <laughs> but i was a bit of a loose cannon and i think that's paid off and i'm i just again like uh i was fascinated by the idea that um these design professionals were going from a private sector into a public sector job and they talked about like how hard it was to make tea every day. Just the fact that like you have to bring your own tea bags in <laughs> and like. Again, this feels like another thing where uh, <laughs> maybe the like cultural dimension <laughs> is lost on us. <laughs> Who's expected to provide tea in the UK, Jamie? Uh, well, uh, it depends. Usually at the offices I've worked at, tea bags are there, but somebody is expected to make the tea every day. Uh, That's usually um, the lowest person on the food chain uh, is exposed to make the tea. And you have a lot of tea, actually, if you're in England and Scotland. I'm Indian, we understand. Yeah. Well, <laughs> It's also well. That's true. In in our case, it's because it's cold. Oh. It's always cold. Like in July, it's about forty five and rainy. That's rude. It's yeah. I mean, it's very comforting if you grew up there. 
<laughs> so, you know. But yeah, the tea, I mean, I, I don't know about bringing your own tea bags. That could just be cruel budget cuts again. Yeah. So I see. yeah that, that's how I understood this as, as a kind of totem for the austerity within these agencies mm. themselves. I mean, a box of tea to be a, one of those big boxes of Thai food is about 99 pence. It's not exactly going to break your bag <laughs> yeah. to, to bring in one of those. I mean, it seems like that, again, these people were coming from the private sector. And like they talk, he talks about uh, how like everything from organizing people to getting software on your computer to yeah. just making tea is yeah. a challenge. And um, that's that's a part of that learning curve, right? When you go from uh, the public sector to the private sector or vice versa, um, that whenever I, I mean, as someone that I've, run, I've worked for nonprofits for 15 years and I see how for-profit friends and their environments are and like they give you lunch every day. Like, are you serious? Like, there's little things about working in the private sector, like small comforts, um, all, like, including just having resources, right? Just having design software um, yeah. already installed on your computer your first day it's, that you just take for granted. And so you move into the uh, the austere public sector, and it can be a lot weirder, I yeah. think. Um, I will... Uh, you should point out, though, the public sector generally has better benefits and better health care yes, than true. the private sector. So one could argue that the free lunches that they're bribing you with in the private <laughs> yes. sector are actually mortgaging your future. Oh, for <laughs> sure. I mean, also, they just, like, keep you from leaving the office ever, and they just, like, keep you at your computer. Um, but, yeah, no, I have uh, – I, w- one thing that I was, I was kind of, like, stewing about while reading this is how the language of, the, of this, like – this experience that these folks are going through, right? They're like, suddenly I have diversity around me. I have all these different kinds of people around me. Mm. Um, that, and like, like, oh, it's so collaborative. It's like truly collaborative that in order for me to get anything done, including mm-hmm. make tea, I have to talk to someone. Like I have to, like all these little things require collaboration, which is kind of amazing. And so they created, like a lot of these folks created structures around it. Like, okay, we meet every every fortnight <laughs> um, to, to manage our notes about the best practices that we've been able to yeah. use and then can inform new uh, kind of like guidebooks for mm-hmm. future designers. Um, a lot of this language is totally stolen by private sector architects. And like, I don't, I won't like, I won't name names this time, but there are, you know, yeah. I see it when, I, like, it's a marketing tactic in a way that like, that so many mm-hmm. private uh, architecture firms going to kind of go through, like, we are intensely collaborative. We are listeners. Right. We work intimately with our constituents. Yeah, there's uh, a, where there's such a gap between the kind of the branding and the self-image and, and the actuality of, of the thing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, you see it all the time where there's like, I mean, I, I really, I really, a, a lot of times I take it on good faith that when people say stuff like that, they really want it to be true or they mm-hmm. really think it is true. One, one, one of the two. Yeah. But like, you know, like, uh, you, you know, again, this, this is like structural issues. Like it's really hard to like affect true collaboration, like in like this, like absolute, like cutthroat, like political economic mode that we exist in yeah. <laughs> right like yeah. uh, you know and I, I mean like you know the the, the public sector is, is has been like dr- like sucked into that right and, and uh, which which is I think really really unfortunate and I and I and I and I always you know I think that there is that level of parsing that you have to do when you read an article like this where it's like do they like is this just like more 
like ideology, like, like what, marketing. yeah, and like, or like, you know, I mean, because I think also like someone could really like believe this earnestly or like really, I mean, it might mean something to them, but it still might be, you know, like not the kind of like substantive thing that we might really like want want to see, right? Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think that like what it demonstrates to me is that like the private, what's, how's that song? Ooh, 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 I, I want to be like you. <laughs> I want to walk like you. Talk like, I watched the Jungle Book, whatever. Um, yeah, it's a, um, there is, right, that so like the private sector is taking language from the public sector about diversity and collaboration and listening and, um, you know, rooted uh, grassroots work. And then the for some reason, the public sector borrowed the the ethics of the private sector, which is like cutthroat, cut slash the budget, value engineer every good yeah. thing out of it. And so it's like they they borrowed these things from each other. And that's how it's been for so long. Yeah. Well, I think uh, as, as as maybe Jamie pointed out, uh, I think maybe one of the things, at least in the U.S., I mean, like that 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 dynamic has happened in a much more subtle way to where th- they're just the same people, right? I mean, like Ben Carson is the one who's in charge of mine, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's like you know, the, it's it's it, it's and all, that's not a joke. It sounds <laughs> yeah. like it's a joke, right? It's not, guy who doesn't know what an REO is, he thinks it's a cookie. <laughs> you think that's a joke? Yeah, it's so like you know. I think that like you know that like for me, it's like that's like it just makes you on it makes you on a scream. But but I don't know. Like I I think I think the the, the I'm I'm certainly optimistic about the future. Uh, yeah. Wow, that was very tender. Optimistic about the future. Yeah. I I guess I'm optimistic about the future too. I I yeah. I I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I like to think that um, instead of other like private and public sectors borrowing the things that make them look cuter or make them look uh, more efficient. Yeah. That instead, when it look when we can borrow best practices, well, yeah. or we, we, you know, like, right, we're not, like, operating in a vacuum. Like, we're not, like, yeah. um, reinventing the wheel every time a, yeah. a designer gets plugged into a new community. Um, they can learn from what other people have learned. Hmm. But I just... I think that there has been a trend in especially the design planning fields um, for many, many years that is that is trying to make the privatization of design look like something that it's not. Yeah, right. Make it look like it's actually very progressive. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not progressive. It's not. It's like and these these designers in this article talk about they're like, yeah, finally, I get like a weekend and I don't have to stay really late. And it's like um, it's a total adjustment to my life. It's amazing how all of those things come together. Yeah. well, uh, we are out of time, uh, but I, I do think that for, for me, the kind of byword that describes that for, is, is like earnestness, right? Yeah. I mean, like, is like the importance of being earnest? Like, <laughs> but like, re- really, though, I mean, like, as I, I think as long as you're kind of being um, like real, realistic, but like, you know, um, like like giving and and uh, like I don't I, earnestness. It's just it's such a good word. You started with austerity and ended with Oscar Wilde. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Well, this right. has been a poetic segment of yeah. Well, that's angry. the angry, the angry to fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's austerity to walk a while, angry to fun. There, there we, we go. go. All right. Yeah. All right. Mailbag's next. Anjali, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this summer on I ninety four, Edwin Frank in the New York Review of Books, Rachel DeWoskin, W K Stratton, Beth Gardner. Allison Hagee, Owen Keenan, Carlo Rotel, Colin Asher, Rachel Galvin. Only on 
and Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature Show, every Sunday, 11 a.m. Lumpin' Radio is proudly supported by Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity helps stage and promote events across Chicago. Game nights, comedy shows, charity fundraisers, and more. More information about Cards Against Humanity's outreach program is at chicago.cardsagainsthumanity.com. The Lumpen Week in Review is the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. Every week, we present the best interviews, the most compelling stories, and the fascinating people we've featured on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review airs every Friday at 6 p.m. and then repeats multiple times throughout the work week. Don't miss the best of Lumpen Radio only on the Lumpen Week in Review. Lumpin' Radio is a media partner of the Logan Square Arts Festival. Running from June 28th to June 30th at the Monument on Logan Square, the Logan Square Arts Festival features art installations and two stages of live music with Hop Along, Speedy Ortiz, The Best, Future Generations, and many more. More information is at logansquareartsfestival.org. The Logan Square Arts Festival supports Lumpin' Radio. Lumpin' Radio is proudly supported by the Half Acre Beer Company. Half Acre's new year-round IPA is Bodum, a new American brew that references the past but looks to the future of hot varietals and usage. Bodum is everywhere Half Acre is sold. More information about Half Acre, their beers, and their tap rooms is at halfacrebeer.com. Lumpin' Radio is supported by Facets, Chicago's independent, nonprofit film access service. Facets is celebrating its 25th year of film camp for kids and teens, with two sessions open now for July. Facets uses film as a way to teach problem-solving and critical thinking to kids and teens in Chicago. More information about Facets, their mission, and how to enroll is at facets.org. Facets. Watch. Be free. Yes, it's the Buildings on Air Mailbag. That's right, folks. It's the time where we answer your listener questions about buildings. Uh, regular mailbag correspondents Ann Louie and Craig Reschke are, I, I don't know where they are. They're globetrotting, I suspect. I, I said they're probably going to join skyscrapers on air. <laughs> yeah, right. Probably blowing out of this yeah, program. L- uh, ivory towers mm, on air. <laughs> UFOs on air. Yeah, like uh, but, but, of course, uh, we have our, our uh, ringers extraordinaire, our super subs, uh, Nick Checky. Emily Hanley, welcome, welcome back to the studio. How are you guys? Great. It's beautiful out. Yeah. Finally summer. <laughs> it's finally summer. Enjoy it while it lasts, everybody. Yeah, it's yeah. ending at six o'clock. So it's yeah, good. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, I always appreciate that we have, uh, you know, we have we have an, a number of uh, architectural power couples in in our humble neighborhood of Bridgeport, uh, <laughs> yourselves included. Um, at least five, right? Uh, Is it five? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're. Sarah Dunn, Martin Felson, mm-hmm. uh, they're right down the street. Mm-hmm. We've got Ann and Craig. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Nick and Emily. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I would count myself and Marianella. Mm-hmm. If That's I at might, least four, right? If there. I may be so bold. Yeah, there's four. Um, I would count you. Yeah, yeah. no, thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, this could be the, high, you know, if a bomb goes off here, we're, we're in real trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. A neutron bomb takes our Bridgeport. There's no more architecture. Yeah, that's, that's that, yeah. Chicago will wither and die. Yeah, yeah that's uh, the flip side is we might get better lump and radio reception. <laughs> that's true. That is true. That's actually all the buildings on Milwaukee Avenue, but that's yeah. another story. <laughs> well, are you guys ready to answer some listener questions about buildings? Yeah, let's cool. wade into the mail. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've got I've got some good ones. I'll I'll uh, I'll kick it off with this one. If a wall has several layers of paint. Does that paint start to act like insulation? (laughs) (laughs) Man, I wish it did. (laughs) Short answer, no. No, yeah. (laughs) What is the R value of paint? Uh, Probably not very much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. What? 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 what, Explain for the non-architect. What is an R value? An an R value is a measure of a a material's thermal insulation properties, and it really varies. You know, wood is around one. Yeah. Um, Foam insulation can be really high, up to um, six or seven, which is this totally arbitrary number, (laughs) but it's based on the thickness of the material. Yeah. Given that paint is really thin and uh, and very solid, I'm going to say none. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, I, I mean, I probably it does not. Uh, that's I do think though. I, you know, I was, um, I was doing some, like, some old school heat loss calculations for a building permit the other day, and there's this like really old school method of calculating like the air infiltration as mm. like part of the heat loss because you have to account for the air that you're ventilating out, which includes the air that's just escaping naturally. And so they have like this weird old like factor, which is like if a building has like one exterior wall and like some windows or two walls and like you know like so on and so forth. There's like a multiplier. That that you just like slap on, you know, some constant and then like, voila, you've gotten the air infiltration, which is like, of course, like not how it works at all. The only, and, 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 and like there ends up being this weird like chicken and egg problem where to do, to actually calculate the air infiltration, uh, which how leaky your building is, you have to do a blower door test, which is where you like put a giant fan <laughs> like in the door and like turn it on and like see how hard it has to push or pull or whatever. Like, I don't know. It's a wacky thing. But like, how do you calculate the infiltration rate without doing the blower door test? But like you can't because there's no building in design. Mm-hmm. It ends up being this weird issue. So anyway, so I defaulted to this old school way, which is like not good because it presumes that all buildings leak like they're from built in like the 1800s. But um, but yes, but the paint can help you with that. If you throw a new oh. coat of paint on a like More a paint. brick wall, it'll make your building airtight. That's a thing that will happen. That is true. Although it can cause other problems, um, <laughs> particularly Chicago common bricks known for holding a lot of moisture yeah. and having to breathe quite a lot. Um, and when you put paint on it, sometimes really yeah. unfortunate things can happen. Yeah. yeah. Like what? Like all your paint just comes off. Again. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you've just spent a lot of time and effort to do something that's just not going to work. That's right. 
And yeah. also, it also can leach out a lot of the minerals in the brick, yeah. depending if you yeah. use the wrong kind of paint on brick. Like, you should only ever use latex paint on brick. <laughs> yeah. And if you're one of those people that was, oh, I got this can of Rust-Oleum. I'm just yeah. going to slap it on there. You can actually damage they, your brick. They do make nice paint that breathes now, specifically for, like, your cool exposed brick right. applications. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Almost nobody in Chicago uses it. No. I'd like no. to point that out. But, yes, that, they do. That they do mineral it. leaching from brick is called effervescence, yeah. which, uh, in my mind, I always, <laughs> I always think is evanescence, which yeah. then, like, brings me down, like, a whole other train of connotations. <laughs> Christian that, rock, yeah, that yeah. just makes my brain like melt into mm-hmm. I don't know. It's um, good. Anyway, good. so now I gift you, the listener, that association to melt your brain. <laughs> we'll have a playlist of Evanescence uh, later on. Great, great, good. <laughs> uh, next question. Um, oh, let's see. Is there a size limit to a geodesic dome? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. No, I think no. that was part of the idea was that you could build one at any size because it's yeah. a modular construction that uh, evenly distributes the weight, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of presupposes that there's no limit to the strength of materials mm-hmm. we, can, we can create, and, and probably there isn't, actually. Yeah. You know, when you look uh, many millennia into the future, I'm sure with current technology, there's probably some sort of limit if yeah. your dome structural members were like carbon fiber or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, because the only thing that I can think of is so like a triangle, you know, people, people it's, in, it's in common knowledge that triangles are the strongest shape, uh, but not lots, lots of people don't know why. It's because when you, when you push down on it, the kind of compressive and like bending strength of the, the, the two members that you're pushing down on translates into a, like tension, like pulling apart force on like the third part of the triangle and ten, tensile strength is like tension members can be very slim so like that's why the geodesic dome works because lots of little triangles and you can have all those thin little struts that like you know are working in tension um and so yeah like i guess if you you know you could have carbon fiber very strong in terms of tensile strength and probably i mean there's the famous buckminster fuller dome Mm -hmm. covering manhattan which was a proposal Mm -hmm. there well there is the bridgeport supersphere as well which is lumpen's (laughs) logo right we have a model uh sitting right next to emily of the uh the, the Bridgeport Supersphere. The Supersphere, of course, as we all know, greets people on their way into Bridgeport. <laughs> it's the largest man-made geodesic dome. So yeah. it's we should be talking about one of Bridgeport's great cultural moments right. when we discuss things like this. Yes, one of the, the 100% real. Um, the 100% real Bridgeport Supersphere. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Greeting people on their way into yes, Bridgeport. In- indicating that we are, in fact, the community of the future. Correct, and we're in Bridgeport. Yes. It's, why, it's why it's on so many lumpen items. It's because <laughs> it's, it's a, a thing that we're all very proud of. Yeah, yeah. All have fought for for generations. <laughs> probably the most, most iconic building in Chicago. Obviously. Yeah, probably, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sears Tower and John Hancock, nothing on this one. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Um, next question. Uh, what are some common architectural scales? Common architectural scales. Do you want to take that oh, one? Man. Like probably. Well, it kind of depends if you're working in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, here in, in the U- places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because here in the U.S., we tend to use, you know, our good old inches, feet, unlike everyone else. So you'll see very different architectural scales here. And then in the rest of the world, it's much more straightforward. Yeah. Um, here, the kind of standards are, you know, quarter inch scale for detailed things, a lot of interior plans, and enlarged plans will be at that scale. Then you'll jump up to... Mm. 
sixteenth of an inch is equal to a foot, up to thirty second, and then you'll see, you know, sixty fourth of an inch is equal to a foot and upwards for doing more like site plans or overall plans. So yeah. sort of the closer in you're taking a look at something, the larger the scale. Yeah. And to, to make it even more confusing, um, we have appropriated engineer scales. Too, <laughs> oh, so yeah. It's they're, possible they're totally to have a, an inch to 20 feet Yeah. Um, or, you know, 40 feet, 60 feet, 100 feet. And to make it even more confusing, when you go to these other enlightened parts of the world that I've heard about, <laughs> um, their metric scales are just a straight like 1 to 200 or 1 to 300, which yeah. can be very confusing when you think about one inch to to a hundred or two hundred feet. Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's it's caused many uh, hilarious uh, confusions in in my classroom, <laughs> where students come with an expectation of metric and they end up designing things, or drawing things that are very tiny or very large, um, very understandably, might I add. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've I've got a, I mean. I've got a. What do you guys have a favorite scale? I know I. It's like a weird thing. Like, what's your favorite? This is the this is the real hard hitting content of uh, you know I'm lumping right. What's your favorite architectural scale? <laughs> I mean I'm actually quite a fan of when you get super detailed like three inch to a foot. Yeah. Like when you get into some nice millwork details, mm-hmm. when you can actually draw even in the little screws. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about Nerd. my OCD. <laughs> <Nerd>. <laughs> yeah, I I have a I have opinions on this also. Uh, do, what, what Nick? What's your favorite scale? Um, yeah. I don't I don't think I could pick one because I have this <laughs> very unpopular opinion that scale doesn't matter in architecture. Oh, that isn't a, and we could, uh, we could draw totally scaleless things. I knew this was hard hitting content. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm with you, Nick. Like, what's what's the key us from using a, a, an inch to you know 27 feet? Yeah, why not? What? Because because have you ever seen a contractor actually bust out a scale <laughs> and measure your drawings? No, no. no. And in, and in fact, a lot of the, the one of the first notes that we put on our drawings is like don't don't do not do, don't don't scale the drawings because we want we you know you have to as an architect working in the twenty first century you have to be very uh, well your the best practice would tell you that uh you have to be very concerned about liability and so you have to plan your dimension strings very carefully to build in wiggle room for the contractors and so you have kind of con- like very control over the dimensions i mean like you if you look at very old sets they do what they call closing out the dimension strings where the dimensions are totally constrained because they'll dimension from one exterior wall to the other and everything is dimension to everything else and you know now we we build in wiggle room um, and so you expect the contractor to follow that which so that would mean you dimension like a wall only relative to like one other thing so you don't mess it up um yeah i don't know i mean like especially now with like plan grid and like other softwares like contractors are like walking around with like the the computers right there Mm -hmm. in their hand digital full scale drawings and they're digital but you know i don't know i'm still a scale partisan i gotta say okay and for me, it's it's because I think that once you get enough practice, sort of like drawing this drawing by hand or like sketching by hand, that like you build a kind of like embodied relationship to like the height of a door or something. Like you can start to like translate, like not in like a direct way, but like in a kind of a like more ephemeral way between mm. like you, your your hand, the size of things on the page, and um, uh, 
the the kind of real world. But if there's increasingly fewer <laughs> pages, then I you know I can understand where you're coming from. I'm uh, my, my in my in my perfect world also I I, I like uh, to translate from like one one you know your your smaller scales to like one eighth of an inch to sixteenth, and then to a fortieth because that one uh, has both an, a factor of eight and ten. So it translates oh, nice. between yeah. the architecture and the engineering mm. scale. That's my other scale note. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. I'm stealing that. <laughs> yeah. That's it's a, a good one. Yeah. Um, next question. How did modern, ba- modern, how did modern bathrooms get so large? Sometimes as big as the bedroom. Why is that? Oh, man. That's a rabbit hole if I've ever yeah. heard one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes into effect when we look at um, what raises home values. Mm. And particularly in 60s, 70s, as we started to really capture some of the American dream in our American homes, one of the areas in the first areas that really saw a lot of modern- modernization Um, were bathrooms. Up until Uh that point, a lot of bathrooms and a lot of residents were either tacked onto the outside of houses or actually fully outside of the house. So it's one of the first times that, you know, you see that amenity coming inside. And if you're going to do it and you're going to bring it inside, it better be nice, (laughs) right? Because like you're spending so much cash to bring this into your house that it was a, a really big showpiece, especially if you look at some of the that time frame, you know, you'll see the most amazing pink porcelain bathtubs, uh. which now sounds <laughs> terrible. Oh, no, that sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> no, it does. but like, but that was, you know, a way to show off, like, keeping up with the Johnsons. Like, that's that's how you do it. Yeah. Um, not, to, not to go on too much of a tangent, but no, a no. historical tidbit is that in um, some of the older neighborhoods in Chicago, Pilsen, Bridgeport, it was common. Um, when indoor sanitation was invented, a lot of these houses had already been constructed. And so um, oftentimes they built the first bathroom like in the vaulted sidewalk. So literally people would walk outside of their homes or or build like a small hallway. And then um, like under the sidewalk where all the sewers and stuff is, they would build a small room there so that it was a direct connection to the sewer system. Oh, my God. Cost less to construct these if you were adding it to an already built home. And so for a lot of years and persisting even into the Great Depression in Chicago, people were – they had plumbing and indoor sanitation, but they were leaving their home yeah. and, you know, using the restroom under your feet as you were walking. That's amazing. That's one of the, mo- that's one yeah, of the that most was, interesting That probably went out in, like, what, 1910 or 12 was when they stopped doing it, Yes, right? yeah. 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 And, uh, and then, you know, deconverted and, and yeah. plumbing was moved inside after that slowly. So I, I've got a project right now where there is a door to under the sidewalk vault that I was really surprised hadn't been sort of filled in. I, and I've been really afraid to open the door. Like we just haven't, <laughs> we haven't done it. We're like, we're just not going to, you know, whatever. And like, you, you know, should open the door. Yeah. The, the previous owner sort of really, you know, jammed it closed, <laughs> which was like very disconcerting. Like, you know, oh, but the reason, the reason like they Pandora's pro- sidewalk no. vault. The reason they jammed it closed, that's that you're actually reading the wrong thing into it. Uh, up until around the 1950s, it was common for people to use these vaulted sidewalks as wine cellars. And because people could just walk from place to place, people would bar those doors on the inside so people couldn't walk from their house into yours. Interesting. So it's, it's not necessarily that, like, he wants to keep you out of it. It was to keep other people from coming into their house. 
we had the same thing in our in our house that we had a door um, right underneath our entry door that went into the vaulted uh, sidewalk. Right, uh, and then that was it. Well, that that does answer my my terrifying question: is what, what are you keeping out that's like in the <laughs> sidewalk vault? But I guess people in the other. Uh, all right, folks, we have a we have a very important update. Liverpool Jamie. two, Tottenham nothing. 87 minutes, Deep Cocker Origi. The substitutes come on and scored. That's it for Tottenham. That's right. And as an Arsenal fan, I congratulate Liverpool for keeping Tottenham out of the trophy pool. Thank you. That's right. Congrats. Oh, man. It's amazing. I almost, almost had to use the dump button for the first time. Yeah, right. In quite a long time. The the, the boys are looking happy. Uh, Sure. They scored two minutes in and with two minutes to go. Uh, What? Fantastic. Whew. It's been a long time coming, folks. Yes. It's been 10 years, in fact, for Liverpool yeah. winning the European Cup. So congratulations, Kiefer. Uh, I, I wish I could take any credit <laughs> at all. I, all I can say is that I'm ecstatic. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. This is this – is, uh, sorry, we're watching the replay. I'm. This is very unprofessional radio. Oh, what you should be doing, just, here, what you should <laughs> be doing is if you're listening on radio, getting to a TV so you can watch this replay yeah. and share along. It's a beautiful That's goal. It's a beautiful goal. It really is. The uh, poor kid. And uh, Tottenham had been knocking on the door, so it's uh, it's good to see. Yeah. You know, in fact, in other countries, by the way, when we don't have the television rights, radio guys will watch the TV and call the game. <laughs> so we actually We're are channeling a long, tradition. a long tradition of idiocy on the radio <laughs> <laughs> involving European football. But, yeah, we need to put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> Buildings on air, a long tradition of idiocy. There we go. <laughs> I'll get Windy City to start moving those up. Next question. Is there a limit to how high buildings can be built? Uh, I would refer to the geodesic dome question yeah. earlier in the segment. Yeah. But, you know, there's. I'm sure there's a practical limit. I, I had a really good structural engineering professor, and he always talked about how there's, like, no practical limit in terms of the material strength. But there is one, like, in terms of... Like like elevators and like elevator technology and like taking up enough, you know, because if you need to get a mile high in the air, then that elevator is going to take a long time. And if, you know, people aren't going to be like waiting 20 minutes for an elevator to traverse that distance, right, then like, you know, you, you have to add more elevators. And at some point it just becomes a problem of economic scale more than anything. It's super interesting you bring up elevators. I mean, without elevators we wouldn't have any tall buildings. I mean, the rise of tall buildings in cities is really one that's tied intrinsically to production of elevators and elevator technology. Essentially, the elevator lets us have tall buildings, and without elevator technology, we don't. Yeah. Right? It was never a structural issue. It was never a structural issue. It was always one of convenience and moving throughout something that becomes ever increasingly tall. You know, we're really good as humans at, like, going side to side and working <laughs> on, you know, a level plane. Yeah. Like, give us a flat surface any day. We're going to do great. <laughs> yeah. But, like, yeah. we're not very good at going up in the air. No. No. I. It's. It strikes me that this is probably the only time on Buildings on Air where you'll hear us say, it's not a structural <laughs> issue. <laughs> Skyscraper heights. It's not structural. Yeah. Surprisingly. Yeah. 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 It's one of logistics. It's one of logistics. Yeah. Even in trying to get building taller, you know, yeah. Yeah. at some point, it, you know, there's no more cranes that are that high and it becomes logistically more challenging than structurally yeah. challenging. Yeah. I mean, also, most of it's from been for bragging rights. I mean, when we really think about it, like, yeah. who really cares who has the tallest building? 
I mean, I guess airline pilots do, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> keep track of that stuff. But, no, I mean, it, it doesn't really do anything for you. At yeah. a certain point, you don't really maximize your investment. Hmm. I mean, you know, <clears throat> in, in really constricted areas, I think like in Manhattan, there's a tremendous incentive to build up. But even after that, the cost of building each floor, I think it's after, what, 45 it, it doesn't really – you can't recoup your money on, on the office space. So. Yeah, there's like literally – I mean, you can like literally run a spreadsheet, right, with like yeah. the – Actuarial sciences. Yeah, it's the actuarial we, yes. sciences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. And next question. How do new homes – or wait, maybe why do new homes often have a smell after the construction has finished? Ooh. Oh, Ooh. Well, well, that's because the contractors have done bad things in your back. No, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So when they build walls, there's wall cavities, and uh, that's where all the trash goes from the construction process. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever taken apart a building, you'll find all sorts of amazing things True. inside. Comic books, Catholic registers. Oh yeah. 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 My mm-hmm. project right now, we found several guns inside. The oh, walls. that's terrifying. Nice. Oh, that's that's one of the worst. I mean, I've heard lots of horror stories about things found in walls, but like, wow. And those yeah. are like depression era guns. Yeah, those are like, yeah. those are great Chicago mob guns. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Clean them up. <laughs> yeah. Clean them up, oh, get your man. Floyd card and put them on a, put them on a wall. <laughs> yeah. I think the question, though, was probably about yeah. that, the new house smell that you yeah. sometimes smell. And um, that is an, an effect of like all the various plastics and organic chemicals used in building materials. Yeah. Um, off-gassing, you know, those yeah. beautiful synthetic hydrocarbons <laughs> and other volatile chemicals that really give that, like, essence of, you know, 20th century America. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's uh, uh, the new buildings on air scent, essence of 20th, there you 20th go. century America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take it in. Yeah, <laughs> but they do, like, this is a thing, like, new car smell. Like, they, if you go to, you know, get a car wash, they'll ask you, like, what scent do you want in your car? And you can have them like pipe back in that scent which i find like <laughs> deeply disturbing it is deeply disturbing yes that they've uh, identified that scent yeah. and then synthesized it again <laughs> from another synthetic smell but to give you that sense again but it i mean gosh maybe this is how we become millionaires like we we it's i, I nah, now i feel like kramer like we need to like go to you know he's got that whole like we need to make the cologne like the beach thing yeah, yeah that was like a plot point in seinfeld yeah yeah you got one more question before no, we run out of time i was just saying like we should pitch to yankee candle company no no new house new, oh, there you go. No, <laughs> no. that's how we're gonna hit no. escape velocity on this no. racket no. um Next, last question. Last question. Yeah, we've got like two minutes. Last question. Um, How hard is it to be your own general contractor in a renovation? (laughs) (laughs) I think there is only one person here qualified to answer that question. Uh, How dumb are you? (laughs) Is your IQ below 130? The answer is yes. No. Um, You're probably already a general contractor. (laughs) (laughs) IQ is below 90? Congratulations. (laughs) Uh, it's not a good idea uh, to be your own general contractor. Um, generally, people that are their own, and I see this from having worked both sides of it, people that are their own general contractor tend to be people that have difficulty um, delegating and giving up responsibility, which is not a good idea in a project. You, you need to have people who are responsible for doing their job. And, and when you micromanage people, you get very poor results. Yeah. On the other hand, it is very good to familiarize yourself with what a contractor is actually supposed to do. You know what I mean? And generally, when people are their own GC, it's because usually of monetary issues. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, whenever you do a project, and I, I was fortunate because I worked in the building trades, I knew that you had to add another 20% to everything. And I, I knew kind of what guys were supposed to be doing. But if, you, if you're trying to GC your own project and have no idea beyond watching YouTube videos and, and going to Home Depot and getting some advice, there's a word that starts with the letter F that ends in up that is going to happen to your project. <laughs> and that, that's the, honestly the most terse way I can put it. Um, on the other hand, you know, I also have found people that have GC'd their own stuff that are builders, and they don't necessarily have better results either. Yeah. You, what you really should be doing before any building project is interviewing a bunch of contractors, getting an architect if your project requires that scale. And in this city, it usually does mm -hmm. um, because you have to get the permits. Um, you want to familiarize yourself with the work they do, and then you want to choose someone whose work you agree with and yeah. who gives you a bid and gives you a signed bid on paper, and they're going to stick to that bid. And then after that, I mean, candidly, uh, everything is, is legal after that. Yeah. And that's really the truth. Yeah. And from the architect's side, um, there's a couple of issues. One is that critical distance that Jamie mentioned. Mm. Like, you, you got to be able to separate yourself from your project, which is yeah. like, that's where you live. It's probably your baby. You, you got to not care about that. And, yeah. and the other thing is, if you're not a GC, you probably don't know who to call to do the work. Yeah. Any good project is the result of amazing subcontractors and craftspeople working on it. And oh, if you yeah. don't know who those people are, you can't have an amazing project. Yeah. Yeah, especially in this city, we're running out of time, but most quality millwork, stonework, masonry, and finished carpentry is all done by people who's. English, I guarantee, was not their first language. Yeah. And if you don't speak Romanian, Polish, uh, some Ukrainian, and I guarantee you don't, you're, you're going to struggle. You, yeah. you need to be able to do that. Well, that's a good place to end our show. Uh, the final whistle has oh. blown on the Champions League it final. Has. Wait, we got to get the we got to get the postman there. We oh go. yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, Nick and Emily, thanks so much for, for being on our mailbag, for being always always uh, being willing to be our super subs, and you are super indeed. Pleasure was all ours. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Kiefer. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, thank and so guys. the final whistle has blown in the Champions it's League. Congratulations, Kiefer. Th thank you, and, and uh, so too the final whistle blows on Buildings on Air. We will catch you in July. We thanks will. for we'll listening. Uh, are we going to be here because it's the 4th of July, though, really? Oh. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure be back. it out. We'll be back. We're not going anywhere. Bye-bye. Yeah. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.